Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. Today is going to be a bonus episode. It's going to be a more casual conversation about a topic very near and dear to my heart, and that is a... Is, is it safe to call it a scandal, a controversy that's roiling the world of podcasting right now, uh, specifically the podcast Reply All, one of the most popular podcasts on the internet. Uh, and I wanted to have this conversation with somebody who was uh, smart, who also was a fellow fan of Reply All, and who cared about podcasting as well as equity in the field of journalism. Hard to find somebody who fit all of those categories. But uh, boy, do I boy did we get the right guest today for this. Uh, Pia Sinha Roy is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared at Reuters, Hollywood Reporter, and Entertainment Weekly. Pia, thanks for joining me today to talk about this topic. Yeah, thank you, David. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to to speak to you. And and like you said, it's a weird mix of all those things. But I do I do come with that background. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about. What exactly happened? Let me try to describe what has happened in the last couple of weeks, uh, and then would love to hear your experience mm-hmm. of it. And if if I get any of these details wrong, feel free to feel free to correct me. But basically, my understanding is: so first of all, Reply All is the flagship podcast of uh, Gimlet Media, which is a company that produces many popular podcasts. Mm-hmm. Gimlet Media was acquired uh, in the last uh, couple of years by Spotify uh, for. A massive sum, hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's a little bit of background on Reply All. Uh, Reply All in the past has been a podcast about the internet. Um, And they actually had a podcast go viral, uh, like a podcast episode go viral recently uh, that uh, everyone seemed to be talking about. It was episode 158 that was released on March of 2020 uh, called The Case of the Missing Hit. Did Did you listen to this episode, Pia? Yes, I did. It was fascinating. Like I, I love so how they explore it, yeah. things, anyways. But that was fascinating. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary of the case of the missing hit. Uh, quote: A man in California is haunted by the memory of a pop a pop song from his youth. He can remember the lyrics and the melody, but the song itself has vanished, completely scrubbed from the internet. Uh, end quote. And one of the co-hosts of the show, PJ. Uh, took the case on and was able to figure out what exactly happened in this case. And it was, it had everything. It had everything you want in a podcast episode. And it, and what was great about it is is also kind of uh, inconsequential. You know, like there's mm-hmm. nothing, there's nothing major. It's just like, a, here's a little fun story for you. And uh, podcast episodes don't go viral very often, but this one did. Uh, it, it was written about by like The Guardian and like pl- many, many places around the world. Uh, and it seemed like everyone I knew had listened to this episode or was talking about it. And so that was episode 158. They've had hundreds of episodes uh, uh, chronicling like all these random internet ephemera. Uh, and it's been a delightful show to listen to. It's been like one of my favorite shows of all time. I, I was actually listening to the show before it was Reply All. It was called TLDR uh, back when it was a offshoot of On the Media at WNYC. So. So little, you've that's been a, little a bit long of time fan. <laughs> long time fan. Long time fan. So that's that's a little bit of background about Reply All. Yeah. Uh, so as time has gone on, Reply All has gotten more and more ambitious with the stories that they, they've attempted to tackle. And recently, they started publishing a four-part series called Test Kitchen, which chronicled the implosion of Condé Nast's Bon Appetit 
after allegations of racial discrimination. And they had released episodes one and two. Now, the, the implosion of Bon Appetit was pretty well known. Like, it was written about by a lot of places. Uh, and they had this incredibly popular YouTube channel. And, like, a, a lot of uh, bad allegations came to light about how people of color were being treated at Bon Appetit. And so there had been a few feature stories. I'd read about them. But this Reply All miniseries was an opportunity to really explore this topic in depth in a way that perhaps it hadn't been before. And the first two episodes were released. Uh, and at that point, a former employee of Gimlet named Eric Eddings tweeted a viral tweet thread that uh, began as follows. He said, quote, last week I got an email from Shruthi, the producer and the kind of uh, the host of this test kitchen miniseries about Bon Appetit. Uh, Eric writes, quote, last week I got an email from Struthi about Reply All's Test Kitchen series. I've been avoiding listening, uh, but once I did, I felt gaslit. The truth is Reply All, and specifically PJ, one of the hosts of the show, and Shruthi contributed to a near-identical toxic dynamic at Gimlet. The Bon Appetit staffer's stories deserve to be told, but to me it's damaging to have that reporting and storytelling come from two people who have actively and aggressively worked against multiple efforts to diversify Gimlet staff and content. Uh, and then he goes on, I'll link to this uh, Twitter thread in the show notes, but then he concludes that this time when uh, people of color were leading the unionization at, at Gimlet uh, was infinitely hard for me, Eric writes. There's more, but this is already long. I don't know what happens next. I'm annoyed that I have to talk about this. There are some producers that reply all whose work I cherish. I'm not asking you to stop listening to their show, but I've always felt that if you have a platform and any sort of power, it's your duty to use that in service of others and to tell the truth. So I felt the need to speak up so that they, they tell the whole of it, end quote. In the wake of that uh, Twitter thread, uh, PJ, one of the co-hosts of the show, and Shruthi have stepped away from the show uh, and uh, as uh, as far as I understand, like are not going to return. And Reply All published a uh, short episode explaining what has happened with uh, Alex Goldman saying, quote, Former colleagues of ours at Gimlet publicly described multiple instances of troubling behavior from both Truthy and my longtime co-host PJ Vote. These accounts prompted a reckoning on our team about the work culture at Reply All, and they left us asking whether we could continue airing the story without interrogating ourselves and what has unfolded at Gimlet. We now understand that we should never have published a series as reported, and the fact that we did was a systemic editorial failure, end quote. And he goes on a little bit, but that's kind of uh, his description of the story and the official version of the story that they put on Reply All. All right. Pia, I'm sorry, I've been talking a long time, but like in order to understand like the details of this, I felt I had to explain the events that have occurred until now. So let's start a little bit further back and talk about this test test kitchen series. Because I think when this was coming out, uh you and I were both probably pretty interested in this, right? Like we wanted to hear about how it is that uh media publications treat people of color. And this Reply All series was one way of, of uh, getting access to uh, a, a theoretically well-reported story of that. So uh, what was your reaction listening to the Test Kitchen series on Reply All? Um, it's really interesting to listen to Shruti's introduction 
to her the series in in the first part of it when she explains you know what she was kind of doing and who she spoke to and she starts it by actually talking about her own experience uh you know as a as a woman of color she's an indian immigrant and she talked a little bit about her reluctance to identify herself as that initially but then sort of realizing that was her you know is that kind of like uh coming to a realization about you know how you identified in in the society around us and so i thought that was a very interesting thing to listen to in the wake of what's happened because given the the sort of allegations that came out against her and i you know i hate to sort of you know i hate to sort of read something read into more than i should be but i think it's interesting now knowing sort of you know what she's been accused of and and what she you know sort of admitted to and on her own part was these failings kind of come from perhaps a little bit of like this reluctance in a way to be boxed into this category that just highlights you as like, oh, you're you're a woman of color. And so I did think just listening to it from that point was interesting. And then sort of going in and hearing, um, you know, hearing the actual voices of, you know, the people who were affected. It's one thing to read it in all these accounts that we've had, you know, some really great deep dives into, into the situation since last summer. Um, but it's another thing to hear their voices and to hear, you know, people tearing up. Um, and I think that emotion was, I, I was surprised to see myself having quite a, a sort of reaction to that as well. Cause you know, they're definitely things that I could relate to myself in my own career. Um, obviously none that have been quite as, as drastic in, in one workplace as, as what's happened at Bon Appetit. But yeah, I, I do think it was, you know, I think it was, and in a good in- endeavor for them to have undertaken. It's just a shame that the person who ended up telling the story um, was someone who's sort of created a similar environment herself, been part yeah. of that system. Yeah. So I I would, I, I guess to, to maximally understand what Pia and I are going to talk about today, like it, it probably is worth listening to at least one of those episodes, but in case not, we'll try to. Dis- in case you you don't have time to do that or don't wish to, we'll try to describe what happens in this test kitchen reply all miniseries. At least the two episodes that have been released. But Pia, it's interesting you bring up the first point about Truthy's grappling with her own status in America. Mm-hmm. I think that East Asian people, and to some extent, I, I can only speak for myself. And some of my people, right? <laughs> but I think that like East Asian people and then like potentially to some extent South Asian people like are often uh, – our, our uh, perception of our own race can be often weird in, uh, in America because I think that like – how do I put this? Often it's not as obvious that we are a, a pe- like our people of color. Like to this right. day, when people say people of color, I sometimes am not sure if people are referring to me, right? In America, at least. And I think that's because um, uh, there's many reasons for that. But I think mm-hmm. like on a practical level, uh, for the longest time growing up, like I didn't necessarily see myself as like, uh, an Asian American. It's like, oh, hey, I'm just like, I'm just an American. And a- as you grow up, you understand how other people view you, you know, right, and right. that they they don't view you that way. They don't view you as just an American. They view you as an Asian American or as an Asian. And certainly, like the 
anti-Asian violence around the country right now, it, like mm-hmm. makes that clear. And uh, and it's, but the the thing is, it can be very easy as one is growing up as certainly as an East Asian and perhaps as a, as a South Asian person uh, to kind of forget about race, right? Like that it's not mm-hmm. necessarily like, uh, like my uh, family upbringing was, uh, was all about assimilation. You know, like my parents mm-hmm. were encouraged me to like, Hey, blend in, speak English. Well, like it, they, they like don't stick out. Right. That's kind of right. what we're encouraged to do culturally. And so to hear her grapple with that, was interesting but the unfortunate the the flip side of that right is that while it's sometimes it can be a luxury to forget about uh our race um the fact that uh we perceive ourselves that way can be used as something to weaponize us against other people of color and that Mm -hmm. that seems to be what has occurred in this case you know like i know i'm using like very stark language but like if you don't recognize like these uh, systems and structures of power, yeah. Uh, then often you can be co-opted by them, and that that Absolutely. is to, to some extent what, what seems to have happened here. Now, to your second point about uh, the series itself, I mean, what is described in the series is basically uh, people of color. Uh, these are like uh, Asians, uh, Latinx, Latino people, uh, Black people. Uh, essentially being told that like their work at Bon Appetit was less valuable, uh, less interesting, less worthy of consideration or promotion uh, than the work of their white peers. Right. Is that, is that kind of roughly, would you, would you say that's an accurate description of what occurred? Am I missing something major in that description? No, I think, I think you, I think you've got it. I, I think it is just, you know, it's really interesting that grappling with identity as, um, you know, immigrants or, you know, second generation kids. Um, I think it is difficult to operate when it, it's like there there are, you know, identities kind of assigned to us because of our race and because of our of, of our gender. And, and we've, like you said, we've kind of operated like I grew up in England and, you know, it was always where I've grown up. It is pretty white. And and, you know, we were just my sister and I just existed in it, you know, we, we went to school and it's not that we didn't, you know, I definitely faced a, a lot of weird encounters through my life, but my day to day, you know, I speak good English. I went to school and most of my friends are all, you know, local kids. And it just, I didn't, I didn't grapple with it day to day growing up. Um, and so having to grapple with it as an adult and look at the boxes that I'm put in and perhaps mm. to even consider that, my ethnicity somehow goes against me despite despite the fact that you know I've worked so hard to you know I've studied hard I've got got degrees I've worked really really hard over the last 10 years to build a career and so to sort of think about you know any you know the fact that my my race could be used against me in some way or to to pigeonhole me in a way is incredibly frustrating and you you sort of don't want to believe that could be happening except it does happen, and it there's a pattern of it happening um, that sort of came to light last summer as not just Bon Appetit, but multiple newsrooms across you know the nation were called out. You know, LA Times, New York Times are amongst them. They're all called out for not doing enough for their you know for their for their staffers who were people of color. And I think 
once that happened, it was a very strange moment for me to start to look at all the patterns of things that I had individually faced over the 10 years at, you know, the different newsrooms I've worked in and just look and go, wow, like this was happening to so many people across the country, but we just never talked about it. We, we almost told ourselves, no, this possibly, this can't be true. That, that can't be happening. Um, and so for me, I think when I was listening to, um, from in the Bon Appetit series, when I was listening to Sue Lee's um, story specifically, and she's Taiwanese American. And yeah. I felt really, really like, she, you know, there's a moment where she gets emotional and, and I felt that I really felt like it's frustrating. We work so hard to, to make sure, you know, to me, I'm, I was born in America. I I've lived there for the past 10 years, but I also grew up in England. Like I feel British and I feel American. Uh, and I feel like Indian as well. You know, my, my parents are Indian. I've grown up in an Indian house, household. So those three things kind of exist within me. And I don't feel like I am one more than the other. I just feel like I'm kind of equally all of those things. And I would hate to be pigeonholed into one or the other. But what I've found is I've become more pigeonholed into the South Asian part of me, I guess, you know, like yeah. they see I'm seen as a woman of color. And so therefore, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you're, you're kind of otherized in some ways. And I just w wish I didn't have to, I wish I, in a, in a way, I just wish those patterns didn't exist and that I, that it wasn't happening to so, so many of us, but it was just so strange and weirdly liberating when it did all finally come to light. And it was just loud enough for it to actually take hold. Because these things I have, I have personally brought these issues up so many times you know, in newsrooms behind closed doors with the people who can make change. And most of the time, it, they, it doesn't, it falls on deaf ears, you know? And so finally, there's just a momentum where everyone rose up and I admire everybody who's spoken out so much because the, their voice was strong enough for it to finally, finally just take hold. And that feels yeah. important. What, so what, what are you referring to when you say it, it has finally taken hold? Right. I just want to I, be clear about that. Yeah, I, I meant like, you know, when when all of these, you know, staffers of color across many different um, newsrooms um, finally sort of spoke up against some of the discrimination they faced in newsrooms um, last summer. It was yeah. it wasn't just Bon Appetit. It was so many newsrooms being sort of brought to account. And the other thing that people have to understand is nobody wants to tweet about these things and publicly you know, address these things. We all want these things to be taken care of and resolved behind, you know, by the people behind closed doors. No one has any interest in going public. This is a very difficult thing to go public with. And, you know, it was thinking about, you know, the the Gimlet guy as well, who who decided to finally speak up. You do it because it's the last, like, last resort. You do it because you really don't have any other avenues to go. And so, you know, for it to have happened last summer and for, it was really a moment of like, everyone had just hit brick walls, I imagine. And, and we've just, you know, all of a sudden it was like, all right, you know, we've got to, we've just, we've had enough. You've got to speak up and, you know, weather the storm that's going to come with it, but at least the best thing you can do is just speak up. So I feel like that's what happened last summer. And it's, it's definitely something that I felt was very interesting to hear, you know, through the the staffers of color at Bon Appetit talking about their experiences. Yeah. 
uh boy a lot lot to react to in what you just said right um, <laughs> yeah sorry that was what, really long no it's okay it's okay i mean one of the things that you said that i uh, that really struck me is this idea that when you're growing up like you don't necessarily perceive yourself as oh i'm a i'm a woman of color like that's not what mm-hmm. you're thinking right you're thinking just uh you know i'm i'm pia i'm you know uh depending on where you're living at the time you might associate with that or or um or perhaps uh, where your what your ethnicity or nationality is, um, but then there's this kind of like rude awakening, basically, <laughs> when you get older and you realize, oh, like that's not how everyone perceives me, you know. And um, it, for many of us, it can come at different times in different set, mm-hmm. uh, settings, but uh, it sounds like that happened also at. Uh, for you certainly, and also for the people at this Bon Appetit uh, in this Bon Appetit situation, and. Uh, yeah, that was uh, striking to listen to, you know, one of the people propose like, hey, we should have a recipe on dumplings, literally one of the most popular dishes on the planet, you know, (laughs) and then like not be taken seriously or, uh, or only when like a white person makes that same dish, is it taken seriously? You know, those kinds of behaviors, uh, were apparently the case at Bon Appetit. And, uh, it's... I think what you also describe is like you could call it microaggressions, but basically mm-hmm. behavior that you think is is normal or maybe you're overreacting. But then like when you think about it longer or when it becomes widespread enough or when enough people talk about it, um, it becomes unignorable that it is, in fact, uh, something more insidious than that. Right. Like you're, you're talking about how like, oh, yeah. Oh, you know. Um, this person mistook me for uh, another South Asian person at the office. Yeah, oh, they're probably just like bad with faces. But then when like that kind of stuff happens, um, you know, times 30 X, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. and it seems to be like widespread and other people seem to be having those issues as well. It become it feels like less a uh, one in a mis- innocent mistake and more like a systemic uh, injustice. And that's kind of what I think the journey that the people on that podcast episode go through as well is like, oh yeah, at first I was just kind of like, hey, um, oh, it's it's a hard place to work. I got to get used to it. But then like as things become more punishing from an emotional standpoint, it becomes clear that like perhaps there's something wrong overall. Yes? I think so. I think it's, you know, I think for many of us, especially when, if you think about it, in newsrooms that are pretty white all around, right? And the newsrooms I've been in, yeah, you know, it is pretty white. Um, when you're kind of one of the only people of color in there, it's really difficult to think about these things in a wider scope, right? You, you, things that are happening to you, I'm not necessarily, I'm not going and discussing with other journalists of color necessarily. You know, I'm just kind of weathering that storm in myself. So I don't know that others are going through the same thing. And that's what happens when there's so few of us anyways and then we're all going through these things kind of on our own. You don't really get to to draw that pattern. You do feel like, you know, you you do feel like maybe, you know, maybe I'm overreacting, you know, and you're kind of told, you know, you can you can be told if you're like discussing with your friends and stuff who, who may be white or they may also be like, no, I'm sure that's not the case because that's the case with microaggressions. They're just tiny enough you know that they may not be what you think they are and and the amount of times I've heard no no I'm you're imagining that I'm sure that's not the case and it's only afterwards that you really start to draw patterns and I think for me that was last summer where so many of these stories started to come out and I started being like whoa that that happened to me 
that yeah. person's experience happened to me. And so I do think, you know, I really, I mean, I really did feel for the the um, staffers of color at Bon Appetit who were also operating in silos. You know, they were all there at kind of different times to each other. And they kind of weren't necessarily all that aware of each other's experience. Um, so they thought what was happening to them, you know, you kind of, you can't quite believe it's happening. And so you don't, you sort of try to say, no, this can't possibly be the case. So yeah, I, I imagine it's very emotional in some ways as well, now that it's all come out. Um, but I just never know. I've got to say there's no winners in this case, right? Like the people who speak out don't win. Um, so I think it's just really, well, yeah, I, 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 I want to talk about that. I, I want to talk about that yeah. in a little bit. Um, but I, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap up kind of some of our thoughts on this, uh, Bon Appetit, <laughs> yes. uh, test kitchen series at, at reply all first. Right. Um, so one of the things about this whole sequence, there's two things I want to point out about this whole reply all thing uh, before we move on to another topic. One is that I think it is really unfortunate that we're not at this point, it doesn't look like we're going to hear the last two episodes anytime soon. And when I say that, I'm not just coming at it from a fan like, Oh, where, why, where's, where's my reply all episode. I'm not talking about it like that. I'm saying like, these are people who they sat down for interviews with Bon Appetit Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, re-traumatized themselves in some cases, like put themselves at professional jeopardy to have these interviews with reply all. And it feels like kind of a disservice to them, A, that they weren't aware of what was going on at Reply All um, when the interviews were conducted. But, I mean, there's no there's no real way to disclose that stuff when you're doing an interview. I mean, I guess you could, but, like, it would be – the interview probably wouldn't happen in that case. But, like um, – uh, so they didn't understand, like, wh- who they were giving interviews to and, like, what the situation was at Reply All when they gave the interviews. and. Uh, second thing about that is that it, 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 like now their stories are just what like it, it must be so upsetting to have given these interviews and then have this whole thing blow up right and then like now like you've trusted your story to these people and now you don't know what's going to happen to it right like is it ever going to be published if it is published it's certainly going to be under circumstances different than you had originally thought um, I guess yeah. I was curious if you had any opinion on like should they still publish them? Like, should they retool it and publish them? Should they just say like, Hey, this whole thing was a total loss. Like, um, I'm curious if you, if you have any opinion on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think personally, you know, the, so the two episodes that do, that are up there now do come with, um, that statement that, um, that Alex reads out um at the beginning of each episode ha- highlighting what's happened and you know promising to to do better but then you know sort of saying with that context here's the episode i honestly feel that shruti as much as she, yes she is the person who's telling the story and unfortunately she has you know the allegations against her kind of you know undermines her objectivity i guess to to the story given you know her her own what she may have done at gimlet but i do think that like you said i i i think the bon appetit staffers who spoke out this comes at great cost to speak out and they've already taken a lot of that storm they've received a lot of support but they are also you know it's it i'm sure they've weathered a lot of 
criticism and a lot of blowback as well. And so I think to trust the story to uh, Suthi and and you know trust that it would be told, you know, to the reply all audience, and now to have two episodes and to not conclude the series, I think that I, I personally think like they should they should have it they should publish it um just because i think they owe it to the bon appetit staffers who spoke out um but i do think it is difficult to take through these reporting out of it so i just don't know if there's a way to you know yeah, they have to like restructure the whole thing yeah 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 i feel like there's like a lot of I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if there is another way to do it, um, but because they have done it and because two episodes already exist, in a way they should probably just put the series out with that disclaimer at the beginning and at least allow those staffers' voices to come through. I think it's such a shame that we don't get to to hear the rest of that. Perhaps. I mean, maybe the staffers are like no longer interested in having their stories you know, published by the organization that presented itself in a way that they might have perceived to be misleading. I mean, that too. I um, think that's a fair point. I mean, I, I wonder if, I don't know, I wonder if, like, do you think if the staff is all banded together and said, hey, you know, we understand right. what went on, but do you, you know, we would still want our voices to be heard? You yeah, know, do you think yeah. that's I, I think acceptable? I think their wishes should be respected and maybe they mm. are being respected. We don't know. True. But like, I just, I hope that they are being respected in some way, basically is what I have to say. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. <laughs> And then the second thing I want to bring up before we move on from the Bon Appetit thing is, uh, and, you know, I'll link to all, all, a lot of articles in the show notes that explain um, more of the background behind how this toxic environment emerged and why it might have emerged and the cir- circumstances led to it emerging at Reply All and Gimlet. But the thing I think that makes this extremely heartbreaking is that Reply All really leaned into the podcasting medium in a way... One of the reasons it was so brilliant, it was, aside from being extremely well-researched and Mm -hmm. well-executed, is because it had personality, right? Right. These people, the the benefit of a podcast, like the one you're listening to right now, listener, you know, is that you feel like you know these people. You're, You're in these parasocial relationships with these people you're listening to, and you feel like, oh, I know this person. They're like my buddy, you know, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, and the personas that were presented to the public are very much like, uh, hey, I'm your buddy. I'm your I'm your hip friend who's kind of telling you about like what's happening in the world, right? And right. it's not like a detached newsreader, you know. It's not um, right. Walter Cronkite. It's like, hey, I'm your friend. I'm going to take you through this thing that uh, you might not be aware of or might be confused by. And that is the attitude and tone and and personas that have been depicted. And I think one of the reasons like this whole thing has been deeply upsetting for me personally has been like that the uh, what is described is like at stark odds with the persona that's been projected. Um, and, and that hits a lot harder because it's a podcast that feels personal compared to if this is like all things considered, you know, right. uh, and pe- people are like appearing for two minutes in a very dispassionate voice explaining the news to you. Um, uh, do you know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, I get I get it. You're right. We invite, you know, we we invite PJ and Alex into our, you know, homes and cars and wherever we listen to podcasts. And, you know, they they've 
got this great rapport. They're very like, you know, um, they they have great they they have great rapport amongst themselves and with like the people who call in they approach all their cases in a really fascinating way that you know they're kind of that epitome of like that young hip cool you know two woke guys kind of thing doing their thing and I think you know the podcasting world in general you know a lot of the podcasts we listen to it is kind of you know it's this like kind of liberal element right there's this informality to it but it's also like hey you know we're let's talk about the things that you don't really get to hear elsewhere kind of thing and I say so I think it you know it is a shame but we never really I mean I guess it's also you never really truly know somebody uh that you listen to even if you are listening to them all the time um on a podcast but yeah it, it is it is disappointing I think especially with Sruti like I think, you know, she's a smart, she's shown herself to be a smart reporter uh, through the episodes and the work she does. But it, it is really disappointing that, you know, especially a woman of color has been complicit in, you know, diminishing the concerns of other Gimlet, you know, employees who are also people of color. And I think that was really, for me, that was that that was just that was super disappointing like I yeah I really didn't know how to comprehend that but I also think it's important to realize that from everything I've read at least that you know the system was set up to put this podcast and its team at the top of a hierarchy in a company and so when things are going really well for you um and you're in that kind of you know you're at the top of the you're at the top of the company or in the hip cool group, you get everything you want. You're like the, you know, you're, you're like the golden podcast in the company, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. when, when you're in that situation, maybe you're just not thinking about the fact that it's not as equitable throughout. Right. And so, you know, if someone personally is not affected by certain things and then they're just like, Hey, like, whatever I'm not experiencing these so I don't know why you you know I'm, I'm not going to support you and going after you know these things that you're you're trying to to get for yourself and that that is upsetting and I and unfortunately that is not limited to Sruti you know that that has happened I think for many people again it's because there's so few people of color who've been able to get into senior levels at different media organizations. So when you are in that position and if things have gone well for you, maybe you're just not as aware that it's not as easy, like it might not have been as easy for for someone else, you know, and they may have faced these microaggressions that you may not have because you're part of a team that is celebrated within the company. So, you know, it, it sucks that she was complicit in in that, but it also, I think, Rather than villainizing one per, one or two people here, I think it's really important to look at the system that Gimlet created, perhaps, to allow for that um, discrepancy in the higher, you know, that hierarchy. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think it's important to look at, you know, yes, I know Sruthi and PJ have stepped away, and it's unlikely they'll come back, but that doesn't fix the system. So I think they really, really have to address those systemic failures of theirs that they said that they would. So uh, I want to ask you about 
some of your experiences in this <laughs> regard, <laughs> Pia, if you feel comfortable talking about it. And if you don't, that's okay. But I had been a- an admirer of Pia Sinharoy's work um, for a while. You know, I'd read her work at Entertainment Weekly and I was like, oh, this is a really um, talented writer. And, um, you know, oh, thank you. <laughs> interested, interested in seeing where she goes and uh, potentially interested in making uh, bonus podcast episodes and culturally relevant with her, which is what's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, and, uh, but that said, I read your name in a vulture piece from June, 2020 (laughs) entitled variety editor in chief, Claudia Eller to take two month administrative leave after Twitter fight. That Twitter fight was with Pia Sinharoy, uh, (sighs) during which you (laughs) tweeted and I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to do this, but I'm going to quote the tweet. No, it's okay. Go for it. You said, so um, Claudia Eller, uh, the co-editor-in-chief at Variety, wrote a piece at uh, Variety called Reflecting Diverse Voices Starts in the Newsroom. And you, Pia Senoroy, tweeted in response to that, no, and then you tagged Claudia Eller. You said, no, Claudia Eller, you haven't done enough nor have most other editor-in-chiefs. I remember speaking with you and your colleague years ago about the lack of diversity in your newsroom. Uh, POC, People of Color Voices, are constantly dismissed. We are not here to make you look better. We are here to work. At which point, Claudia Ella responded, quote, when someone cops us something, why would you try to criticize them? You sound really bitter, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes on for a little bit. But um, and we should point out, I believe that Claudia Eller has since returned to the Variety newsroom, right? So um, this uh, this is ancient has, history. Yes. This is ancient history at this point. <laughs> ancient history. It's all done. Everything's um, I mean, everything's like, fixed. <laughs> everything's fixed. I mean, this is like in the 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 long ago times of eight months ago. Yes. Um. So uh, you you not only called out your editor in chief, but it led them to take an administrative leave as a result of that. And you were talking earlier about how um, when people do things, no one wants to do something like this, but when they do, it's generally like a last resort. Mm. Uh, And in the case of Eric Eddings, I think uh, Shruthi had reached out to him wanting to have a conversation about the whole um, unionization effort and how she'd behaved during that time. Right. And because she had spent some time being introspective. And even on the podcast, she says, like, I didn't behave as I should have. And I'm still working through that. Right. But my sense was that she didn't come correct to him. Like, that's what happened. It, reading the LA Times story in which he describes his experience, she didn't come correct. And mm-hmm. she didn't come in an apologetic tone, which is what he wanted. Right. And, and because of that, it really rubbed him the wrong way. And so um, he lit her up. Uh, in a way that was, uh, you know, like nothing he said was inaccurate, right? Okay. So, um, so it's just like I, I don't know that that was a last resort in that case, but more like there's just one thing that kind of pushes you over mm. the edge. So it's yeah. that was my perception of that case. It was not like he had no other recourse, but more like he just was like it just didn't quite strike him the right way. And I'm curious if that's the case here as well. If it's like you saw this column, you saw this, you know, back padding going on and you're like, mm, not today. Um, <laughs> to the extent that you hit you the feel nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah um, I think it's important to mention I've never worked for Variety. Um, so Claudia has never been my boss or anything like that. I've, I've never written for them. Uh, I did meet with them um, 
many years ago, just just as a general meeting, because, you know, part of my job um, when I was working at Reuters was that I would interview, you know, I'd interview other sources in the industry about the state of the industry. And quite often I'd be interviewing variety journalists um, or other trade journalists, you know, and so I you know, it's a small, LA is a small town in the journalism world. And so, you know, you go, you take meetings, you make sure you know who else is out there and who you're talking to. So, you know, it's really very much a general meeting, but I do remember, you know, visiting their offices and looking around the newsroom and, you know, it was uh, definitely very white and male. And, you know, I'd brought that concern to them at the time, which, um, you know, 2014 was pre kind of even Oscar so white. So these were not conversations that were happening very much um, about, you know, racial inequity in Hollywood. That was not part of the, the sort of mainstream conversation yet. And so just me looking around that newsroom, I was like, so, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing, you know, to, uh, to diversify the look of this place kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I have friends who work there and, and just, do you know the posture has been very difficult for many people um you know when we're all locked down in the middle of a pandemic and i just remember when you know in late may when the video of george floyd um came out and it you know obviously it was this it was this perfect storm in a way of everybody being at home that video making the rounds everyone just feeling sick to their stomachs obviously and i think it was that momentum that led to you know, to for for people to you know really rise up in a way that um, hasn't happened before, um, and I just think for me, all of a sudden to see that piece, and if you read the story, look, the story's still up there. I urge everybody, if you're interested, to go and read it because that context is important to me. It was just, you know, Claudia had used the some of her female staffers of color to prop up her argument and about how she's finally, finally realized that, you know, diversity starts in the newsroom, like, you know, diversity in society kind of starts at the newsroom kind of thing. You've got to get, you know, reporters of all perspectives to, to come in. It was just, it was such a strange performative piece of wokeness that I read and I was like, this is, what is this? And and for her to <laughs> use these women, you know, um, to prop up her argument also felt really, really, really forced. And I was just like, what is this? I don't know. It just, it, it really mm. was that moment of like this, what is this rubbish? Like, come on. So I don't want to hear let this. Me, let, let, me, let me quote a little bit from the piece, just so we know <laughs> we have what you're talking about. She's, Claudia Eller writes, quote, As editor-in-chief of Variety, I have tried to diversify our newsroom over the past seven years, but I have not done enough. And I have not done enough is all caps in violation of Variety's typical extremely mm-hmm. restrained uh, locution. Um, I, she I guess continues, she means quote, it. <laughs> I need to take a hard look at our hiring practices to make sure they are racially inclusive. One way to begin would be to restructure our internship program to make sure we tap a diverse group of students from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. Variety has a tradition of hiring many of our interns as full-time reporters after they graduate. So this is one way to ensure more inclusiveness in our newsroom, end quote. And throughout the piece, she's quoting from people of color in, in the newsroom, right? Yeah. So like Audrey, Cleo Yap, and... Um, uh, and let's see, uh, Elaine Lowe and, and a few other people are quoted in the, in the piece. Mm. Um, 
I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm curious, like, <laughs> uh, what would distinguish a, you know, woke piece of rubbish from a woke piece of non-rubbish for you? You know, I, I'm curious, <laughs> like, like to what, what, what would have made something of like this more sincere? Uh, like, I just don't, uh, I'm just not sure kind of what, what about this rubbed you the wrong way? You know what I mean? No, I, I, I kind of get it, except, you know, the fact is that it's like, I don't, I don't know how she's tried to diversify. To me, it was like, how have you tried to diversify the newsroom? Internship programs are not the way to go. You have to diversify top down, not bottom up. Because the fact is that if you don't have, you know, people at the top in senior positions who are, you know, who have a voice and can use their platform, then people who are coming in, people, young people of color who are coming in, they're not going to be nurtured in the right way. You know, if they have issue, and and we've seen this, by the way, like just going back to Bon Appetit and the test kitchen, like you know, actually, Sruthi mentions, like you know, um, the editor in chief, uh, Adam uh, Rappaport, his original sin, as she had claimed it was, was that he surrounded himself with the top leadership of people who looked exactly like him, and they were all white, and so what happened was when they were bringing people of color into that, you know, absolute lowest rung of the ladder. Those people were not nurtured in any way. They were not supported and they were not listened to in any way. So I kind of saw, you know, in in that piece, in the column that Claudia wrote, where it's the same thing, where it was like, you're looking at it all wrong. How are you still not getting this? But I think the biggest frustration was, why are you using the, you know, the death of a black man to, you know, sort of ponder your own failures in the newsroom? Like, it does not equate. You know, it it does not equate. Like, don't suddenly, you know, feel like you have to have a voice in this moment. This is not a moment for you to have a voice. This is a moment. Like, mm. I, you know, for me, it was like yeah. we were hearing from so many strong black voices coming up, rising up, speaking out against issues. To me, it was like taking away from that. Uh, even I was like, I don't want to take up space right now. Like, I do not want to be, you know, I'm, I'm also you know, I'm listening, I'm, I'm learning more about the country I live in and what's going on here. I have been, you know, I'm very much an ally, but I still have learning to do for what black Americans face. So I'm, I'm not going to take up space. And here I see, you know, a white editor in chief sort of pondering about this whole moment and like using it to reflect on, on something she's like, I'm going to do better. So praise me and look, I've got four women of color in my story who are, you know, it just all rang. It was all wrong. It just did not ring true. Mm. It felt very, very performative. So for me, just tweeting what I did, it was a little bit like just, you know, after many days of seeing so much strife coming up, you know, the people talking about their experiences and and really sort of reading as much as I could. I just felt like I, I don't know why I've necessarily tweeted what I did but it was just like a moment of like come on like just be real like really this is so fake um and there were many Mm. versions that I could have tweeted of that and I settled for like the the politest version because I do be I also do believe like you know if I am addressing things like this like I try to be polite you know I could have absolutely responded with you know something far more scathing and you know, possibly full of expletives, but I'm not going to do that. That's not my way. Um, so, you know, I I, w- yeah. I feel like the way I responded was, you know, going to be the way that, that's always going to be the way that I try to address these things, which is like, 
look, I've spoken to you about this many years ago. Don't say you weren't aware. You know, don't yeah. like look around and be like, hey, I wasn't really aware that I, you know, it's it's not enough and you didn't need to write mm. this piece. So I think it was just a combination of those things that, it, you know, it's less about like what is a woke piece versus what is, you know, what piece of this, what version of this column would have been acceptable. It's more that it was not needed. It was taking up space. That was, it, it was unnecessary for it to take up, you know, it's just a moment where it's like, it's okay if you're just quiet, you know, you don't have to be involved but anyways like little did i know what was going to happen and and you know it's again like i have to say i never worked there i'm i'm not going to you know i'm not going to sort of weigh in on what, on the culture there because i just you know i don't know it other than you know what i know from you know friends who've worked there but it's very important to realize she was not you know there was no action taken against her because of her responses to me on twitter what happened was it was a domino effect that led to, you know, people, other staffers being very upset about the way that she had responded and calling her out on it. So she decided to hold a virtual meeting with everybody. And it was in that virtual meeting, from what I know, that a lot of criticism against her came out and she listened. And so really, like, this shouldn't have anything to do with me. But obviously, I am now frustratingly linked to it. But from mm. what I know, it led to that. And that's when, you know, real kind of failures came to, to light. And so, you know, well, you say you say frustratingly linked. But I mean, if this caused like a mini reckoning in the newsroom and or like her to be even more introspective than perhaps she was, mm. uh, like, are you are you not okay with that outcome? Do you just, you're, you're what? Where does the frustration come from in this case? I, I can imagine yeah. where it comes from, but I just want to hear it from you. <laughs> I think you know there are times where I'm like I wish I, I want to erase myself from this narrative. You're like, <laughs> I, I wish I had never sent that tweet. Um, it was more. It's not. I do not regret anything I said. I would not have said anything different, and I would have said it to anyone's face. You know what? Again, what I said. You know, I hope was. Uh, you know, an articulate way of saying this is not right. Um, no, I think the outcome, you know, I think it, it is good that for me, the most important thing was that, hey, listen, if staffers of color can speak up, um, or it just all staffers, if all staffers can speak up against, you know, um, any discrimination they face or any failures in a newsroom, um, if they're able to address that with the people who have the ability to change it, that is, you know, that's a good outcome in my opinion, um, because people need to be listened to. But that's also me being very <laughs> idealistic about, you know, that's a very idealistic view of the industry. The fact is that like, you know, I don't think, I don't think change is going to happen overnight. And I just don't think that someone is all of a sudden going to, you know, get some paid diversity training and change their ways entirely. Um, you know, I think change has to come from top down and until those changes take place, not just in one, I'm not just talking about variety here, I'm talking about all newsrooms, until all newsrooms start to hire more people of color from, you know, the top down, uh, we're not going to see real change in journalism. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I think that is really frustrating. Um, you know, I the reason I say I <laughs> wish I could have raised myself from this narrative um, is just because it's not, you know, I've worked at three publications uh, in 10 years. 
Um, I've been a you know a staffer at each. Um, two of them, I was senior, and each time I have honestly tried to have these conversations behind closed doors that you've never heard me really talk about anything like this publicly, you know, cause I, cause there's no reason I try to take it to the people that mean, you know, that can do something about it. You know, um, I'm happy to be outspoken. I am outspoken. I know that, but, um, but I'm fine. To, <laughs> I, I would not change that. You know, I, I'm not good at keeping my head down and mind, you know, sort of just staying quiet. If I see something wrong, then I am likely to address it, but I will always try to address it with the people that can make a difference. So for over 10 years, if I've brought these things up and brought it behind closed doors with the people that can make a difference, and you know, most of the time it's been frustrating outcomes because no, you've never heard from me about those. You know, I've never tweeted about those. I've never publicly mentioned anything about those. And so I think, you know, for it to all of a sudden, for this one thing, which yes, you know, I did tweet. And again, don't I don't regret the tweeting of it. It is just very strange that this one time that I tweeted about this, that it kind of you know blew up at least within our industry it was you know frustrating because it comes after many many years of trying to do the right thing in the places and with the people it counts yeah so i want to get back to that but first i mean i just want to explain what some of these other tweets that claudia wrote were because they're pretty rough um (laughs) oh god (laughs) she she writes you know like because the tweet i read is like you sound bitter it's like okay well whatever so she said so she said can i just ask you can i just ask you david have you ever been called bitter in your life (laughs) um virtually on a daily basis no i'm just joking i i've never been called bitter by a superior before or or she wasn't a superior of yours but like somebody in a high-ranking position for instance i just find it i found the term bitter really really funny because i was just like oh man like <laughs> how many times have women will say like women or people you know minority people have been called bitter for just questioning something in the system it's not the first time that it's happened to well, me and like, I don't think I'll be the you, last <laughs> how dare you question her good intentions right and, right right and I think the the thing is um it, it hearing you describe that variety piece it reminds me of this segment that anthony jeselnik does Mm -hmm. uh he's a shock comedian that i happen to be a fan of uh and and like his whole shtick is that he's outrageously offensive you know like that's (laughs) his whole thing and some people might find that tiresome and offensive but like it still works for me Mm. and he has this uh, do you know his work by any chance i i've seen i i've actually seen it if yeah i have i've seen him like live once or twice i think so oh nice are you you a fan or yeah, no, I, I remember thinking he's pretty good. I don't, I haven't qu- sort of stayed on top of that, but um, but no, I, I remember be, it being kind of like, oh, he's he's funny. He's getting into like those topics that you know, those shock jock topics that you you love to hear about. <laughs> he has a special called Thoughts and Prayers, and the segment that the the titular segment is uh, him talking about how whenever something tragic happens in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, your many of your friends, and possibly you, often tweet out thoughts and prayers to the people affected by the blank tragedy or what have you. Yeah, and he's he, he, the point that he makes in that special is that is a completely useless thing to say, and also what you're actually saying is please don't forget about me during this challenging time. Like a <laughs> lot, lot of tragedy going on in the world right now, you know, but please don't forget about little old me, you know, right. I'm, I'm still over here. Right. Uh, and it sounds like that's kind of, that's kind of the vibe. I'm not saying that that's what 
you know, Claudia Ellerth said or thought, but I'm saying that's kind of the vibe you got from her, uh, from that piece. Um, yeah, I, you know, you sort of keep coming back to that word performative. It did feel performative. And uh, and speaking of thoughts and press, there's a really great Bojack Horseman episode as well on that, which I love as well. But but yeah, I do think, you know, in, in this kind of social media world that we live in, especially this past year where it really is our kind of connection to the outside world, you know, when things like this happen, you do you you feel like you need to have a voice, right? You need to you need to say your part. You need to be part of that, that momentum, that movement in some way. Um, so yeah, you know, I definitely understand like people wanting to comment, wanting to reflect on that. But I think there was also a very strong moment of like, Hey, listen, if you are not right now, if you are not black, then just take a seat and listen. Right. Like to me, that that's what I sort of felt like in June where I was like, and so again, this is why I say I, you know, I wish I wish I just wasn't part of the narrative because I really, you know, yes, I'm a woman of color in America, but you know, I'm not black, and I don't want to equate my experiences um, in the same way because I know what Black Americans face is is so so much more kind of discriminatory than than perhaps what I faced. I think there are pa- there are similarities in some of our experiences, and you know, um, I'm sure if you know. If you compare them, you can find some of those because it's more systemic failures against people of color in general. But, you know, I I wanted to be respectful of like that moment, especially being like, hey, let's just let that's what I think that's why it just really frustrated me. I, a lot of outlets, you know, had had black journalists, black, black cultural critics and stuff writing pieces. And I was reading them. You know, I think that I think that's fair. I think, you know, it was very fascinating to read everybody's take on everything going on and and I was reading all of those that's why it really stood out for me that piece that Claudia wrote really stood out like a sore thumb because it was just why is there a white voice in a position of power centering herself in this conversation does that make sense so it completely makes sense and when you tweeted that she called you bitter and then she said on twitter quote thank you shouldn't uh, it was either i think you shouldn't or she's saying thank you comma shouldn't i'm not sure exactly which one she intended but she says the the editor-in-chief of variety tweeted <laughs> thank you shouldn't diss someone who has hired minority journalists but admits she needs to hire more i think it's thank you right thank you i think it, i th- and, i'm gonna yeah, guess it's a thank yes it's a thank you and, and then uh you responded and you and and then she responded um, oh, so you you said, quote, you're an editor-in-chief. You just called me bitter for calling you out for not having done enough in the past when you could have. You could have created a beautifully diverse newsroom years ago. And you wonder why journalists on your team might not want to raise these issues with you. And then she kind of tweeted a couple more things. And then she said, quote, done with this. Let's all go outside at 9 p.m. tonight and shine a light in the sky for George Floyd, end quote. <laughs> Which was just, if you had written it as a parody, it wouldn't. It would be like two on the nose, I think, because the idea of like, yeah. I'm dropping the mic and we're all going and shining lights for George Floyd, you know, like mm-hmm. is just. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was just like, wow, this is it's just, just so like even when she called you bitter, I'm like, OK, well, you know, like she she, she kind of. She, you, you know, you kind of got got her goat a little bit. You kind of got under her skin a little bit. Mm-hmm. This is still like redeemable. 
And then I'm reading down as like the tweets go on. And then like, she's like, let's all forget about this and shine a light for George Floyd. I'm like, okay, this is like this, whatever happened to her is deserved at this point. Right. I think and by the way, we I... should point out, we should point out what happened to her is like, she didn't like lose her job or, you know, she's not canceled or anything. She took an administrative leave. She's back now. So it's not like something terrible happened to her, but it's just like, that, that that is like the definition of tone deaf. I felt um, her response. <laughs> yeah, um, it was it was a little. I mean, it was just it was the. Here's the thing: that was the response that I have heard in, in its various forms through the years with this issue, because this issue is easier to sweep under the rug when you have to look inwards and you have to look at the the you know the failings in your own in your own sort of you know house, right? It's easier to just be like, hey, like, let's not worry about that. Let's just go and focus on the bigger topic right now. So, you know, hey, I, if I feel like I can, you know, be an ally and fix racism by shining a light in the skies for George Floyd, then, hey, I'll go do that. And it's like, whatever, fine. If, if you feel like that's where I'm just like, all right, fine. If that helps you sleep at night, that's cool. That's fine. You, you did great. Well done. You fixed it. I think genuinely that's what I, I, you know, I didn't expect this to blow up in the way that it did. And I 100% did not expect anything to have come from it. So the fact that anything did come from it is very strange um, and like a little surreal. But again, it comes down to the fact that the staffers in her newsroom spoke up out against her uh, after this happened. It was nothing to do with me and her specific tweets. It was just that that led to her staffers speaking out. To me, I find it fascinating that someone who has admitted that they don't, and I, you know, she's put out statements. So, you know, I, I'm hopefully not, you know, speculating on this. I'm just going by what she's mentioned. But if someone sort of cops to not being able to, not having done their job properly for many years and not really sort of knowing how to run a, a huge newsroom, to me, it's just like, well, what, why, why are you doing that job then? Like, you know, I'm sure you have other skills. Perhaps you'll be more useful in another arm of, of, you know, this industry than, than running a huge newsroom. When if you say you don't know how to run a huge newsroom, I just, you know, to me, it's just like, if, if you say you don't know how to do the job that you have, especially if it's a really high powered job, should you have the job? But, you know, clearly, uh, I don't know. I, but, uh, I, I don't know what the but, answer is to that. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like people uh, have the capability to to grow or make realizations like in, in, in a situation like this? Uh, I'm, I'm curious kind of. Uh, I don't believe is. I don't believe that somebody getting paid leave and, and then, you know, paid diversity training over a couple of months is going to come back entirely reformed and woke or whatever you want to call it you know no no I, I don't I do believe what said persons could do if they're in this situation is to immediately hire people who, who can work alongside you uh, in senior leadership to help you rectify the massive failures you have in your newsroom I think the only answer is going to come from someone who knows how to do the work, not like expecting, hey, we're just going to throw someone into a bit of training and hopefully they'll know how to do the work. Like this, these changes don't, these changes don't come that easily. These are inherent things within people, right? Like races, I'm not going to expect somebody to suddenly understand the experiences of you know, I don't expect like a white person to suddenly understand the the experiences of a person of color, having read a couple of books and maybe done some diversity training. That's not how it works. You know, that change has to come within them 
you know, over the years, and hopefully it shifts that perspective. And the the best way they can address it in the short term is to seriously hire people of color who know how to do the work and give them the position and the the power to be able to do the work. You know, don't just give them figurehead positions. Allow them to come in. Allow them to hire more diversely, and um, you know, create that 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 kind of safe space for underrepresented journalists. Um, that doesn't exist, really. Uh, there's very few newsrooms that are being run by by people of color, and and those that are, you know, I admire them hugely because I think, you know, already they they've been able to run newsrooms that feel more diverse in perspectives and voices, and I think that just has to continue. But yeah, in this case, I it's it, listen, it's an eye roll situation for me, you know. Um, obviously, like I don't want anybody to to lose their livelihoods in any way um i'm just saying there is there are many other jobs to be done in a company perhaps there's room for elsewhere but if you admit to not knowing how to run a giant newsroom (laughs) then should you be running a giant newsroom i don't know (laughs) you know i'm sure there are other people who might be able to do that job better last question (laughs) uh the the mindset you had when you made this tweet, you know, who who knows what people's mindsets are when they make these these viral tweets. And I'm not necessarily saying that like your experience was similar to the people at Bon Appetit who partic- uh, participated in the podcast or uh, the people at Gimlet who kind of uh, tweeted about their experience at Gimlet. Like every experience is different, so this is not necessarily the same. But I I, I think you in this conversation have described like. It's uh, unpleasant to put yourself out there in this way. Like it's not your optimal desire to to proceed in this way. And I guess I'm curious, like looking back on it for just your experience in this case, like why, like what was it like to do that? Like because you uh, continue to work in journalism, you want to have a career in the industry, and. Uh, there's a potential that something like this could, could blow back on you that like um, somebody might be thinking of hiring you and they're like, Oh, but did you see what PS said about Claudia? You know, like uh, I, I guess, did any of that go through your mind? Were you afraid of any of that? Or are you just like, Nope, this person needs to get got like, what is, what is kind of your perspective on that? I will say I wasn't thinking about any, like either of those things. I genuinely um, in the moment was just like, Hey, listen, this piece is not, right and not and especially within the moment we're in this is uh yeah it's tone deaf it doesn't um you know it's performative come on like just do better um but you know it really just came from that it was just me saying like just do better come on this is not this is not the time or the place for this um it really isn't anything else and and genuinely i hope if people go and they you know, read my tweets, I think, I hope that I've conducted myself in a way where I hopefully was articulate and polite enough. I, and Jenny, and I am that person, right? I am not, you know, I'm not out here to try and like, you know, get people on anything. Um, But I also feel like I have to say, like, I have been a journalist for, you know, 10, 11 years now, like in this industry, working really, really hard, you know, and I, you know, I've risen up the ranks and it is, you know, sort of my own trajectory has had its own frustrations, especially in the last few years. But I, 
you know, I don't feel like any of that has been the only thing, the only frustration for me genuinely in my career has been that, you know, I've worked really hard to, to sort of move up that ladder, so to speak, and and to get those senior roles so that hopefully in more senior roles, I can be part of the change that I'm looking for. Right. Um, and, you know, I've and I've gone through two fairly, you know, major layoffs, um, along with many other people at those publications that I was laid off with. And it's frustrating because what it comes down to is that me working really, really hard and moving up into these positions of of senior editorship or whatever also comes with me asking for a little bit more money, as you would as you move up the ladder. And and what it comes down to during layoffs is like, hey, well, you know, we just we don't believe we don't want to pay you what you're asking for to keep you on anymore. Your skill set is not as valuable as the salary you're asking for. And that is really frustrating because, you know, I don't believe that's true. I've worked really, really, really hard to make sure that my own skill sets are, are very diverse amongst the different types of journalism you could do in LA. Like I've worked at a wire service. I've worked at a magazine. I've worked in trades. Like I know how to do this. I know this industry inside out. I've seen like, I've covered the rise of the streaming world, you know, all that Netflix original programming. I was there from day one when they started that. So I have, you know, I've really gotten to see and learn Hollywood inside out through the last decade. And that is a skill set that I, you know, very much value having to have, you know, having done. And so it does frustrate me that I'm in a situation now where I'm like, hey, you know, we're having these moments of there's this big media reckoning. And here I am sort of sitting on the sidelines trying to figure out, hey, like, can't I be helpful to you? Can't I be, you know, I know, like, I'm, I know, I understand this discrimination, this discrepancy, that systemic failures that have been going on in newsrooms, I can help, right? Like, I'm actually in a really great position to, to be a part of that change you're looking to make. So to me, you know, if someone doesn't see the value in that again, there's not much I can do, you know? And I think a lot of people are looking for band-aids to the issues. They're looking for, hey, who, who can we quickly hire here and there to just make our numbers look a little better? Um, and and by the way, you know, you'd say Variety's been called out, like even like somewhere like um, the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association who vote on the Golden Globes, they just got called out. They're a group of 87 journalists. Uh, they just got called out for not having any black members. Let me tell you, there are other places in Hollywood right now who are desperately trying to stay under the radar to make sure nobody looks within their own organ within their organizations to realize that they have probably you know zero, probably zero like black staffers um, because there are some and nobody seems to realize because you can fly under the radar as long as you don't get caught out. So yeah, I think, you know, this just happened to be, it happened to be a, a very strange experience. By the way, I have had like, I've had, I have a Game of Thrones tweet, I'm sure that went far more viral than this did. <laughs> you know, and that I, is what you would like to be known for. I mean, you um, know, I would like to be known for like putting out, you know, gifts of like Bob's Burgers. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> you know, this is not, this is not like what I this would not, ever This is not the defining me. thing of your career or anything. No, I, look, I've done a lot of work. I've worked really hard. I've built great relationships in this town. I really hope that is what is used to, uh, define me and not this thing that's why I was just like god I wish I could just 
seriously erase myself from this narrative. Like, I just don't. Yeah. And, but, you know, speaking I, I, to you about it, I think it, I was, I've got to say I was on the fence. And I know you've, you've been really, really um, gracious to sort of give me the space to think about it. Um, and I'm really glad we're kind of doing it in this context because I think the reply all thing has taught us that this is still not an issue that's been resolved, right? It's still going on. So... Well, and I think people hearing you talk about it can hear all the kind of frustrations and contradictions (laughs) and conflicts that are inherent in something like this. It's like, Mm -hmm. not like you, you, there is like on the one hand, there's some level of pride in um, being in in like having to having created some potential uh, small percentage of change in uh, at least one specific newsroom. On the other hand, there's like this frustration and weird like ambivalence about like, oh, people know me as that person who called out Claudia Eller. And and like, is that really what you want? Like, you you, you know, you were like, I've done all kinds of other work. Like, look at my career. It's, all you know, there's all kinds of things that aren't Claudia Eller related, a person who I haven't even worked with, you know. And so right. it, there's this kind of frustration of being caught in that narrative uh, in a way like you, you in, in a way you kind of have lost control. Or, you know, calling someone out in the way that you have, uh, you give up a little bit of control over your narrative, basically, is what's happening. I, think. I mean, I feel like that- I completely lost control of my narrative in a way. But, but also, you know, like I said, I hope that, you know, people can see I conducted myself in the manner I conducted myself. And the thing is, as journalists... We're always taught to, you know, generally, you know, the tenets of journalism is to question things, right? It's to seek the truth. Um, and I might be a little naive, you know, in approaching it that way. But, you know, I I didn't, I don't think there's any, um, I don't feel any kind of regrets about questioning the truth in something, right? Even if it was in a small way, I don't think any changes really come. And I think, you know, if you look around newsrooms in LA you, and really look at the change, look at the change, look at the makeup of them, I don't know that you're going to find that much change has happened yet. And it's been a difficult year, right? The pandemic has affected everyone in a very negative way. Uh, people are trying to cut costs and, and you know, budget for the future. Uh, it means that there's less money uh, in general and definitely less money to hire new people and new senior people at that. But... I think it is like, I don't know. It's I, I I don't know if I, I really don't know like what the narrative is anymore. It was kind of a small thing that happened within a larger, greater media reckoning. Like I noticed my that this would pop up as like the ninth or tenth thing in the greater kind of you know story of it. So I, you know I don't think it's like at the the topmost thing in people's minds. Obviously, if you Google me, you'll probably find it. But it's. It is what it is. And to me, I don't really look, I'm not looking at any newsroom now to be like, hey, how are you changing things? Like, I'm just focusing on my own future and how I can use my voice. Like, I continuously think about, like, what can I, I don't, again, I don't want to sound like too cliche with this, but for me, it's like, where can I best use my voice um, and any platform I may have to continue to spotlight underrepresented voices, projects, whatever, and to also encourage, you know, young reporters of color, especially like young brown women, how do I, you know, how can I be of help? Like, you know, 
that's what I just think about. If anyone wants advice, I'm always happy to talk to them uh, and help them perhaps navigate situations, um, tricky situations, all of that. You know, journalism is a, a wild, weird world in itself. And, and you know, I've done quite a few different um, newsrooms in, in that space. And so hopefully if I can lend some experience to that, I will happily do that. But that's why I'm just like, I, I've had a pretty great career so far. And, you know, I think that needs to stand for itself. I would hate for this one thing to just take over the very, very hard work that I've put in to, to build myself to where I'm at. Um, but, you know, I know this town really well. And I, and I think hopefully, you know, I do think that these things tend to, to fade away. Maybe they already are. But I do hope that someone, some someplace holds, you know, the, the newsrooms, especially in covering Hollywood, I, I hope they hold them accountable for the promises they've made in diversifying this, their staff. You know, we're, it all, you know, it, hopefully people can look back, you know, in June and look at the past year and see positive change. And if they don't, I think they need to question why they haven't. I think this, I think this has to continue to happen. All right. Well, uh, you can view some of Pia's other work uh, right now over at Vanity Fair. Uh, she has written a piece called Inside Sound of Metal's Immersive World of Silence. Great piece. Check that out there. Oh, Her work you. has also appeared at Reuters, The Hollywood Reporter, and Entertainment Weekly. Pia Sinharoy, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank really you so it. much. It's been fun. And. You can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can support this podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or heading on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash Dave Chen and supporting the podcast there. This podcast was powered by Simplecast at simplecast.com. Check them out for a great podcast management and analytic solution. And it was uh, produced by me, David Chen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Culturally Relevant.